James chapter number 4. If you have your Bibles, James chapter number 4. Now, I'm in a huge dilemma. You say, what's that? I'm telling you, I think the whole Bible's been preached. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> what left to preach from? Okay, but uh, I'm just teasing. There's a lot of the Bible left, but I'm telling you, when you're talking about the love of God, you're getting to the heart of the issue. And I don't know about you, my heart's been encouraged, stirred, challenged, and I trust you have has been as well. And certainly has been a wonderful conference. And uh, I uh, was kind of wondering what to preach tonight. And then all of a sudden I started looking at the crowd and said, boy, we got a room full of sinners. I think I can do this. Okay, so we'll just go after it and uh, see how the Lord leads here. Uh, I'm just curious, how many of you, this is the first time you've been to some part of the, the Victory Conference? First time you've ever been. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Amen. And how many of you... Um, uh, our uh, returnees, it's at least once, or once before, maybe more, but okay, you got the veterans here, the Victory Conference veterans, and um, it certainly is uh, just a wonderful crowd, and we've just been thrilled, and just really in a certain sense, just overwhelmed with the great response, and it sounds funny, but uh, you, may, you may sound this to be a little bit strange, but when we got the theme Extreme Love, we were very excited about it, but in a certain sense, I wonder if people, I wondered if people would just kind of look at it, oh, well, oh, I get that. Yeah, Jesus loves me, this I know, and kind of push the brochure aside. But I'm thankful that God put some hunger into hearts. But I'll tell you, friends, this is the core issue. And uh, you get a hold of this fact, there's a lot of other things that will fall into place. So that certainly has been a joy. Uh, I'm just curious, how many of you uh, uh, came to uh, the conference from a state that adjoins the state of Wisconsin. That would be Minnesota. Uh, that I think is Iowa, uh, then Illinois, and uh, I think that does it. Okay, so how many are from those states? Can I see your hands, please? I know many of them are from those. Okay, good. Anybody from the other side of the Mason-Dixon line? Other side of the Mason-Dixon line? Okay, these are the Southerners. Okay, yeah, and they're the... They're the ones, uh, now listen, I, I love going down south. Now, I don't mean, want to make any Northerners feel bad. They know how to cook down there, I'm just telling you. Uh, they know how to do it down there. And uh, you want to know where to go? I'm a foodie. I, you see, if you're an evangelist, you have a side job. You don't know this, but if you're evangelist, you're also a foodie. Okay, so uh, kind of tell you where the good restaurants are. And, uh, but anyway, it's just, uh, just a thrill. I, I know we have some folks from Chicago and every time anybody says the word Chicago, something happens in my heart because I spent uh, four very critical years of my life there. My dad moved when I was six years old. He moved us to Chicago to become the pastor of the Marquette Manor Baptist Church on 60th in California. And I, find, I understand this group's from 62nd and Woodlawn. Is that the correct? And so they're not too far from 60th in California. You know, that's in a little bit. They're closer to the lake. And so it's good to have some folks from Chicago. And that's where I spent four years, and we moved out to the suburbs. But I cannot drive through Chicago without seeing that old skyline that so does something to my heart. And I'm thankful you folks are there in that mission field and doing a great work there. And it's good to have you tonight. And I hope you young people get a vision for your city there. And uh, that's a city that needs to be reached. But uh, still got my part of my heart in Chicago. And uh, there's certain places God has led me. And this is my really third place to live. Here is Wisconsin. It's become my adopted home. And uh, I hate to tell all you Wisconsinites, I still pull for all the Chicago teams. I know that's a bad deal. And many times that's a real bummer, like right now. Like, who wants to, uh, you know, I don't, you know, it's just, you know, NBA, NFL, and Major League Baseball. Okay, we're all in trouble down there, except for the White Sox. That is the team right now. You watch the White Sox. If they play baseball, we got a chance. Okay, so um, uh, if you're not a baseball fan, most of you are clearly not. Uh, that's okay. But... Um, that is, is it. Okay, I, can, I, I don't want to get sidetracked. We're out of time here anyway. We're having to move quickly. But James chapter number 4, 
is a wonderful passage of Scripture. My dad often talked about it as a passage on personal revival. I want to preach this. I remember a few years ago I was preaching at our recovery, addictions recovery program, and I remember the Lord laid it on my heart to preach on James chapter 4, and this is going to surprise you. If you're not a preacher, you're not going to get this. But I will tell you, sometimes while you're preaching a message, God helps you to see the real message of the message. Okay, you didn't prepare it right. You, you did the best you could, but you're getting up there and it's like, boom, bingo. Yeah, I see what this passage is all about. And that's what happened in James chapter number 4. And it all comes from verse number 10 that says this. Humble yourself on the sight of the Lord. You help me out now. And do you know what it infers if Jesus or God lifts you up? You know what it infers? That you're down. You cannot be lifted up if you're not down. So this is a passage, don't miss this, about restoration. Amen. Restoration. Some of you came to the conference in need of being restored. Say, preacher, I'm down for the count. I've gotten discouraged. Or I've gotten into a sinful issue and I just get defeated on a regular basis. Or my anger problem, I thought I had that thinking taken care of, but man, I've been so angry recently, it's come back like a vengeance. I don't know what your issue is, but I know in the Christian life there's many times we're down for the count, as Brother Gilmore graphically illustrated for you, and I'm not going down on the ground here. Okay. I got worried when Brother Shetler got down. I'm thinking, I wonder if he can get back up. Okay. No, the reason is he's older than I am. Okay, so I, I know I'm not sure I can get back up. But, um, but you know, when you're down, you, you, need, you want to be restored. You want hope that you can be restored. You ever fallen or gotten down, got discouraged, got down, and thought, I'm never getting back. I can't get back to where I was. Now, that's always a lie from the, from the pit of hell because God says he'll lift you up. Now, notice you're not lifting yourself up. You probably heard the terminology, lift yourself up by your bootstraps. You ever tried that? I hate to tell you this, it doesn't work. You ever heard of the law of gravity? <laughs> Listen, we could take the biggest guy, the strongest guy in this room out in the lobby afterwards. We could get a circle around them, have them grab their shoelaces and try to cheer them on. Lift yourself up by your bootstraps. You know what? It's not going to happen. Right. I'll tell you, a lot of Christians are trying to lift themselves up their bootstraps wondering why they can't. Well, they can't because you can't do it. He's got to lift you up. Amen. So I want to just preach just a simple message, just trying to run through this passage and just highlight some things. I won't be able to highlight everything just for time's sake, but I would like to preach through it here and just help us to see three things. Number one, I want you to see the problem. Number two, I want you to see the principle. And number three, I want you to see the pathway. Now, first of all, I want you to see the problem. You know what the problem is? We're in a battle. Now, we have a couple of enemies. We actually have, we all know the enemy, the devil. But the Bible gives us a couple other enemies that the devil really is good at using. Number one, an enemy within. Number two, an enemy without. The first three verses we'll read quickly. From whence come wars and fightings from, uh, uh, among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Number one, I don't know about you, we got an enemy inside. Have you ever noticed that there's somebody inside of you trying to pull you away from God? The songwriter put it this way, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm telling you, every one of you in this room has within your heart a traitor. And he's doing everything he can to destroy your life. I don't know exactly why, but when I was a teenager, I became fascinated in the modern history of modern Israel. 
And I did some reports on 1948 and 1967, the famous Six-Day War, 1973. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Some of you have lost your history. Those were three major conflicts in modern Israel. And I've just been fascinated with modern Israel. Just it fascinates me. And, of course, you see the fingerprints of God in it all. And, and I remember I was going down the road and listening to some documentary, just trying to stay awake or whatever. I can't even remember. It was, it was several years ago. And they talked about a spy that from Israel had gotten into the Syrian army. And he had gotten up the ranks where he was trusted in the inner circle of the Syrian army. I don't know how you do that, but he did. And um, he would go back to his apartment there in Damascus and he would wire into, on a shortwave radio, he'd wire sensitive military information back to Israel. It was a very fascinating documentary. And it talked about the fact that at that time they were talking about, they were building gun embankments there on the Golan Heights. And of course they were worried about the Israeli Air Force coming in and taking them out. And so they're discussing how can we, uh, of course this is before the technology we have of the day and so they're talking how are we going to hide them and so this guy the spy said hey listen the eucalyptus tree grows really fast so why don't we just plant the eucalyptus trees over the gun embankments and that way they can't see them they said that's a great idea so that's what they did and he goes back to his apartment and he shortwave radios back into the Israel military brass hey in a few months from now bomb the eucalyptus trees one day, to the surprise of the Syrians, all of a sudden the Israeli Air Force comes right over the Golan Heights and just knocks out the gun embankments. You see, Syria had a problem. You know why? They had a traitor. Now, unfortunately, if you're viewing it from Israel's perspective, they found the traitor and they hung him as a public display in the, in the center of Damascus. But he did a lot of damage before they found out that they had a spy in their midst. But I'm telling you right now, you've got a spy in you. You've got a traitor inside of you. It's your own lusts. It's your self-life. It's the Bible packages it theologically the flesh. We don't have time to develop it. We developed it in our session a little bit about it. But I think we all understand that part of us that tries to pull us away from God. So we have an enemy within, but we also have an enemy without. Look at verse number 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Now, I remember back when I was a kid, these were the good old days. Man, we'd come home from school about 3, 3.30, and we'd turn on WGN Chicago. You say, why? Because the Cubs were on. Yeah, we'd turn on the game, it'd be about the fifth inning, and the Cubs would always be winning. And then you got to watch the last three or four innings and watch them lose. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Every day, that's how they did it, you know. And so uh, uh, I remember as a kid uh, watching the Cubs play. And I, could, I could tell you every roster number. I could tell you all about the Cubs. And, and they had kind of sunk a little bit. The 69 was their team, early 70s. And, and this was more in the mid-70s. They were still a good team, but, but uh, uh, not, a, not a phenomenal team. But I, I would watch the Cubs a lot. But I remember back in those days, they would have commercials. And one of the commercials they had was a beer company that no longer exists, I think. I think it went belly up called Schlitz Beer. And they went, it, Schlitz Beer's commercial said this, you only go around once in life, so get all the gusto you can. Now, can I tell you something about that slogan? It's a lie. <laughs> in other words, we're not living for eternity. The issue is not to die with the most toys. The issue, my friend, is to lay up treasure in heaven. Amen. See, may I say this to you? The world is lying to you. The world is that world system out here that hates God. 
I remember one time I was preaching at a camp or something like that, a smart Alec teenager. I know there aren't many smart Alec teenagers, but anyway, a smart Alec teenager comes up to me. I'd preached on be not conformed to this world, something like that. And he said, hey, preacher, he said, that pulpit you're preaching from is worldly. I said, no, it's not. I said, it's earthy, but it's not worldly. Something that is worldly comes from the world system that hates God. And God says, don't love that world system. Don't be conformed to the world system. Don't wear the uniform. I remember uh, over the years I've had guys travel with me that perhaps before they uh, either got saved or before they got right with God, I got into all kinds of sinful issues. And I remember one young man who got saved later in life. He was, got saved at 20 years old from a drug dealer. And I remember we could walk into a Christian school lunchroom. He says, that kid listens to Pearl Jam. That kid listens to Green Day. That and he'd go around the lunchroom and tell me what rock group they listened to. You say, preacher, how could he tell you that? Because they were wearing the uniform. See, the point is, the Bible says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world system tell you how to live because it's lying to you. So you've got an enemy without. And I will tell you, friends, if you allow too much media into your life, you're going to buy into some wrong philosophies that come from the world. See, I don't have time to preach on all of it, but I want you to see you got two enemies. And, of course, we got a, the enemy of our souls loves to use the flesh and the world to defeat us on a regular basis. And there could well be dear folks in this room that have allowed some kind of lie from without or some kind of lust from within to leave you defeated. Maybe it's bitterness or anger and hatred towards someone that has wronged you or you think has ruined your life. Maybe you're coming from a difficult home. We've dealt with these things in the last few years and there has just been some, some idea like I can't do it, I'm worthless, I, I'll never be used of God. A lot of young people feel that way. A lot of young people today feel totally worthless. All of those things are lies, and Satan comes and uses them to get us down, to get us defeated, to get us to a place where we are living absolutely way below where God wants us to live. So we see the problem, and much more could be said, but we see the problem. But it brings me, number two, to a principle. Verses 5 and 6 begin to turn the corner and begin to lay some things. Now we're going to, and last of all, deal with the pathway. May I say this carefully? The pathway will do you no good unless you understand the principle. In fact, if I had to leave one of the two points out, I would leave out the pathway because the principle is essential. Don't get me wrong, the pathway is important too, but the pathway doesn't work without the principle. Right. So we're going to see two things here. First of all, look at number first, number five. Do you think that the scripture saith in, uh, excuse me, do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If I had 10 commentaries in the books of J book of James, they'd all probably give us a different take on what that means. Now, if you're a preacher, you understand there's certain verses that are interpretational battlegrounds. In other words, good people disagree. This is one of those verses, and I'm not going to go into it all, uh, but there are several uh, kind of common interpretations. I'm going to just give you what I think it is. The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. What in the world does that mean? Well, I don't know. I think the spirit that dwelleth in us is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, you say, what do you mean lusteth? Well, the word lust actually in the Bible is a neutral word. And depending on context, it determines, determines whether it is a bad desire or a good desire. So it could be a good desire. And I want you to understand envy has the idea of jealousy. So I want to ask you a question. Is jealousy always bad? And the answer is not necessarily. I hope you men are jealous about your wife. You know what I'm talking about? I'm hoping if some guy's being getting fresh with your wife that you're going to be, you know, you're going to take some action about that. 
There's something called a godly jealousy. And I want to just tell you this. You know what? Jesus loves his bride. Did you know that? And I want everybody in this room to get on notice. Notice, don't mess with the bride. Amen. Do not mess with the local church. Don't mess with the bride. You know why some people get in trouble? They're messing with the bride. Now, I could say a lot about that, but let's just continue on. So Jesus is telling us here that our God, I believe, is telling us here that the Holy Spirit that dwells within us desires us jealously. Do you know God wants to have a relationship with you? God wants you to be successful. God wants to bless your life. God wants you to enjoy every day of your life. God, God wants you to have usefulness and, and fulfillment, lay down at night and say, wow, I love what I'm doing. You know what I appreciate, Brother Ken Shaver? I can tell he loves what he's doing. You get this, listen, young people out here, you mark my words. If you do what you want to do, you will be miserable. If you do what God wants you to do, you're going to think, man, this is great. I'm telling you, friends, I know I'm probably, I, well, I know I'm on the backside of life. I get that. I'm on the downhill somewhere. But I'm telling you, friends, I'm having so much fun. I'm always asking God, can you give me a few more years? I'm having a great time. I want to quit doing this. This is a ball. I'm telling you, I finish on a Friday night doing War of Special Forces, and I go back to my trailer and thinking, man, I can't believe I get to do this. This is unbelievable. I personally think I've got the best job on planet Earth. Now, if you think you got a better job, you're wrong. You, you might be a good job for you, but I think I got the best job on planet Earth. I don't know how many times people come and say, well, oh, Brother Evangelist, I appreciate so much. You're willing to travel around the country, and they kind of feel sorry for you. Oh, you guys live in one place. I feel sorry for you. How boring is that? I get to travel. Man, I get to wake up in the morning. I got a different front lawn. And I don't even have to mow it. That's such great about it, man. Somebody else has to mow the thing, you know? I love it. Absolutely love it. You say, anything about it you don't like? Write and thank you letters. That's the only thing I can think of. Other than that, I love everything about it, man. Get up on Saturday and uh, I'm telling you, hop in that truck, get that cup of coffee, man. Let's get going. Let's go. Let's go on. You say, uh, preacher, don't you feel bad about leaving the place you're at? No, listen, don't get me wrong. I love people. I love the week of ministry. But when everybody gets right with God, let's give me a nuts, another bunch of sinners. Okay, let's go after this thing. You know what I'm talking God gives us all different gifts. And the greatest thing about the will of God is, as I've said this to teenagers many times, it's the greatest thing. I feel sorry for every teenager in this room that will do your own thing and not do God's will. I feel so sorry for you. I feel so, I mean, I, real feel, I feel, really feel sorry for you. I don't care if you're president, if you're president of the United States, I really feel sorry for you, you know what I'm talking about? Like really feel sorry for you. You ever notice they go in and all of a sudden you, they come out and their hair is totally white, you know what I'm talking about? Thinking, well, uh, not for me, man. Uh, I don't think I can handle that. But I'm having a ball. I've said it before, I wouldn't trade places with a shortstop on the Chicago Cubs. Of course, there's not many people that would. But anyway, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the point simply is, friends, that God wants the best for us. Amen. He's pulling for us. I'm not trying to put it down too low, but he's cheering for us. You ever seen a fan? I'm talking about a really fan. I mean a big fan. You know, they're cheering for their team. They know all the names, you know, et cetera, et cetera. When they watch a game, they are engaged. You know what a real football fan is? They're, they don't watch it on their, they're literally standing as they watch the game. And if their favorite team misses a tackle, they tackle the furniture. You know what I'm talking about? 
And if you're a Chicago Bears fan, you tackle a lot of furniture. Okay, because there are a lot of missed tackles. You know what I'm talking about, at least these days. But uh, not, not a real good day to be a Chicago Bears fan. Of course, hadn't been a good day since the mid-1980s. But anyway, so... You have to understand, as a Chicago fan, the way we cope is to make fun of our teams. That's how we cope, okay. But, um, but, you know, there's nothing like a fan. They're pulling for their team. I remember years ago at Marquette Manor, we had a wrestling team. Now, we were kind of mediocre. We weren't bad, but we weren't great either. We had a wrestling team, and there were other teams in the area. And uh, The ones they hated the most were the Fairhaven team. That was the team that used to clean our clocks. There's some guys that went to that school, so they know what I'm talking about. But I remember... Um, we had a secretary that was an extrovert of extroverts. And her son was an eighth grader, and uh, he was on the team, and uh, wrestling team, and they used him not because he was good, but because they needed somebody to get the weight class, you know what I'm talking about. So uh, he was just kind of uh, mediocre and, and uh, was above really what he should have been weight-wise. You know, if you know anything about wrestling, they try to lose weight so they can drop down weight classes. And, and uh, so um, uh, he would always lose, but she would come to watch her son, eighth grade son, and you never wanted to sit next to her. <laughs> because when she cheered for her son, she would do to you whatever she thought her son should be doing on the mat. <laughs> you might find yourself in a headlock, and you might find yourself being pinned on the bleachers. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> she was pulling for her son. <laughs> now, my friends, I want to tell you, the Lord Jesus is not just in the grandstands or on the sideline pulling for us. He's inside of us pulling for us. <laughs> Which brings us to the second part of the text here. Verse number 6 gives us a very important principle. For he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. So that Grace is that Holy Spirit within us enabling us and strengthening us to do what we can never do unless he enabled us to do it. Wow. The Bible says he gives more grace. You say more grace than what? More grace than cheering for us and pulling for us. He's also there to enable us, to give us victory where we've been defeated and to strengthen us. Wow. Okay, so why does, how does he do it? The Bible says he does it to people who are humble. But if, you res if you're proud, he resists you. Now, let me start with the word resist because it's very picturesque. It has the idea, if you can remember, you know, uh, the old uh, uh, there in the first century, like a Roman army that would have shield to shield be locked and there'd be a, some other army come against them and that army with those locked shields would resist them. That literally is the picture in the Greek word. Now I don't realize in today's culture we don't, we really aren't, Familiar with that? That's not the way we do warfare. The best illustration I could think of is the defensive line on a football team. Now, I remember back in the 1970s, uh, I don't know, I just think all sports were better in the 1970s. I don't know why. I guess because I was a kid. But they named the defenses. You guys remember that? The Purple People Eaters. Anybody remember the Purple People Eaters? Yeah, the Minnesota Vikings. That was back when the Minnesota Vikings used to beat the Green Bay Packers. That's hard to believe. But anyway, there was a day that happened. Okay. And then there was the doomsday defense. That, of course, was the Dallas Cowboys. And then there was um, the Orange Crush defense. That was the Denver Broncos. And then there was the Monsters of the Midway. Yeah. That was the Chicago Bears. Yeah. 
Number 72, William Refrigerator Perry. Oh, yeah, that was a great defense. And then, of course, there was the fearsome foursome. That was the Los Angeles Rams. But anyway, I, I won't uh, uh, to reminisce too much, but, but let's just imagine those Chicago Bears. If you remember, you had 72 Richard uh, Perry, and you had Dan Hampton and Richard Dent and uh, McMichael. And uh, so there they are on the front line. And let's just imagine uh, that 1985 defensive wall, somebody gave the football and said, run through that line. Now, here's exactly what would happen. You would be resisted. <laughs> You'd probably be driven back five yards and probably be about half buried before it was all over. In fact, it might be a case where they would just bury you. You know what I'm talking about? It's over. You would be resisted. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand, friends. When you and I are proud, that's what God does to us. So what is humility and what is pride? Because I don't know about you, I want to get on the humility side because that's where God graces us. Amen. The whole idea of grace is this. It's undeserved and it's a gift. God gives you what you do not deserve. Some cases it's peace. Some cases it's joy. Some cases it's fulfillment. Some cases it's wisdom. Some cases it's supernatural strength. I mean, I'm telling you, it's God intersecting with man. It's God giving us what we don't deserve because we need it. And he graces the humble. Number one, humility is honesty. And pride is dishonesty. I'm going to just be honest with you, friends. I've observed this even in the last few months. I have observed this. When people get honest with God and honest where they need to with people, God graces them. I am telling you, I, I was with a pastor, and I was this was remarkable to me. The pastor and his wife, if you took all their relatives, they had, I mean, multiple relatives, male relatives, who were pastors who committed adultery and left the ministry. Multiple. And I was amazed when that pastor got in front of his people, he was unbelievably honest. And I asked him in private basically about it. And he basically said this. He said, our family was known for deceit. He said, I have decided I'm going to be honest about everything. I'm telling you, friends, God blesses appropriate honesty. Amen. God, you see, it's like this. What we do today is we act like we're something we're not. And I want to tell you something, friend, God resists that. But when you come and say, oh, God, I'm needy. I need you, God. I can't do this without you. Or I'm, I'm telling you, friend, you go to your wife and say, honey, I just want you to know there's a problem in my life that, that uh, I have, uh, I got I to gotta get victory on this thing. And you go to your pastor and say, Pastor, I don't care what it takes. I got an anger problem. You may not know it, but in my home, it's causing a problem. I got to get victory. Or you go and say, Pastor, I got some problems here. I'm viewing things on the internet. I have no business viewing. It's defiling my marriage. I got to have victory. I will tell you, the first step for victory is always honesty. The greatest weapon Satan has to keep you in bondage is secrecy. And I'm watching it happen all the time. I have a message now I preach on the power of light. I'm preaching it all the time. Listen, darkness is not as powerful as you think it is. Many people who are in the works of darkness feel so in bondage, so powerful, powerless to overcome it, they think darkness is powerful. But I'm telling you right now, darkness is wimpy. 
You say, what do you mean? Darkness isn't powerful. Darkness is only the absence of light. Light. Darkness cannot stand before light. In this room right now, there is absolutely no way that darkness can invade this room. You know why? Because there's light. In darkness, you turn on a flashlight, guess what? You've got a beam of light. But in this room, I cannot turn on a flash dark. Did you know that? There's no such thing as a flash dark. I've told that to our people here. There's no such thing as a flash dark. You can't, darkness is wimpy. And I will tell you, some of you that feel right now, the works of darkness are killing me. Here's what God says. Put on the armor of light. Next phrase, let us walk honestly as in the day. You know how you put on the armor light? You get honest. Listen, you, you listen. if you continue to act like you're something you're not, you're going to have God resist you. When you get with the appropriate people and say, I've got a problem, I don't care what it takes, I've got to get this out of my life, then you're going to start to experience grace. I'm, I see it with teenagers all the time. I'm telling you all the time. Here's a kid in bondage, goes in the principal's office, starts to confess, you know, whatever it might be, cheating on a test, breaking the rule, whatever. And I want to tell you something, friend. There's the kids that give a testimony with light literally growing off their face on Friday night talking about God showing up in their life. It all started when they got honest. Amen. Amen. I say it every week. There is power in honesty. Pride's dishonesty, that brings us to the fact that pride is not only honest. I'm just going to give you two, I think, tonight for time's sake. But the second is pride is independence. Excuse me. Yeah, pride is independence and humility is dependence. Humility is I need God. And pride is I don't need God. Now, I granted, I doubt many people in this room would ever say, God, I don't need you. But here's how you know if you're independent. You don't pray. Prayerlessness is the declaration of independence. And I'm going to just simply say this, friends. If you need God and you know you need God, you cannot live a life like that without praying because prayer is the breath of dependence. You cannot depend upon God without expressing it in prayer. You want to know how independent you are? Just think about your prayer life. That'll show you how independent or dependent you are. But I will tell you, friends, so humility is this. I have sinned, and I need God. Or I am weak, and I need God. That's humility. And pride is, I'm doing okay, and I really don't need God. So God gives us a wonderful principle here, which then brings us to the pathway. Okay, now, I know uh, we've uh, had a wonderful week and a lot of things here, so hang tight. I hate to tell you this. The next few verses, verses 7 through 10, there are 10 commands. You say, you're going to have to preach through 10 commands? Well, actually, not totally. Because among those 10 commands in the pathway, verses 7 to 10, among those 10 commands are found three future tenses. Now, the future tense is a very interesting, uh, uh, combined with an imperative, is an interesting dynamic. And I just want to, Share that with you here. It's, it'd be like this. It'd be like if my dad came to me when I was a teenager. He did, I don't remember that he ever did anything like this, but let's say he had. He'd come to me and said, Jim, clean your room, and we'll go to Dairy Queen. Now, clean your room is not an option. He commanded me to do it. You got that? You with me? 
So I clean my room, and guess what happens? Future tense, we're going to Dairy Queen. That's what's happening in verses 7 to 10. And I think many times the, pre the future tenses are missed, and that's the framework. It's not 10 points, it's 3. So what we're going to see, these future tenses help us divide up the seven commands. And I want you to note that each future tense gives us movement. The first movement is the devil's leaving. The second movement is God's coming in. The third movement is we're being lifted up. So there's three movements that occur in verses 7 to 10. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're down for the count, there's three things you need. The devil to get out of there, God to move in, and God to lift you up. Amen. Three things need to happen. So let's look at how those three things happen. You say, preacher, I want to be restored. How do these things happen? Well, first of all, let's look at the very first one in verse number 7. There's two commands and then the future tense. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and... He will flee from you. Now, that's a promise. Anytime you have a command, like I said, and a future tense, it's a promise. So God is saying, if you submit and resist, the devil's out of there. Now, don't miss this. It's real simple. You know what submission is? Submission is saying, God, I may not know what your will is, but whatever your will is, that's what I want. And resisting is basically saying this. Jesus, I usually don't talk to the devil, but anyway, Jesus, whatever the enemy wants, I don't want his will, I want yours. And in Jesus' name, I don't want his will. I want yours. That's pretty simple, isn't it? So really, I would believe what verse 7 is saying is, God, I want 100% your will, and I don't want Satan's will. And the Bible says he's got to go. Now, here's our problem. We try to resist the devil without submitting to God. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you're submitting some to the devil, how can you resist them and submit at the same time? It uh, submit to God. Uh, with, in other words, you're saying yes to the devil and you want to say no to the devil. You can't say yes and no to the devil at the same time. See, that's the reason some of you kids in this room are so defeated. You, you kind of want to serve God, but you want to listen. You want to watch what you want to watch. You want to, you know, you want to get on your YouTube deal and you want to watch your YouTube videos and you want to watch some uh, compromised uh, media stuff and, and you want to do that. Not too bad, but you want to watch a little bit. You don't want to be totally surrendered to God. And I will tell you, you can be that way, but you mark my words, you can't get rid of the devil that way. You cannot get rid of the devil by saying yes to him and then trying to say no. It's like, devil, I kind of like this, this, and this, but no, I don't want you here. It doesn't work that way. The only way to get rid of the devil is to completely say yes to Jesus. Jesus, I want everything you want, and I don't want anything he wants. Amen. You know what has to happen? What will happen? He's got to go. Now, I saw this graphically illustrated a few years ago, and I'm going to be honest with you. I always hesitate telling the story, but it's, you'll remember it. That's why I tell you the story. But it's... Uh, it's kind of a spooky story, okay? Um, it's, it's true, but it is a spooky story. Now, if I was on a, a third world mission field, nobody would think it was spooky. It would just be life. Okay, but I, I'm going to give it to you. We as Americans kind of struggle with stuff like this, but uh, I do believe, by the way, I do believe Satan is getting more and more open in some of the things he does. Working with teenagers, I hear more and more. I'm sure Brother Visser and others that work with these things, you, you realize that there's a very real devil. But I remember several years ago, I was in, down in Florida, and a youth pastor came to me and said, Brother Van Gelder, and he said, there's a 25-year-old preacher's kid. He's away from God. He's living in sin. He's living with his girlfriend. And, and uh, she said, he's actually, I actually know him. Uh, but after the service, he wants to talk to you. 
Would you be willing to talk to him? I said, well, sure, I'll, I'll talk to him. And so I, after the service, we sat down, and he told me, I'll be there. He knew, he said, I know the guy. We'll sit there. So he sat down. I sat down. This 25-year-old kid sat down. I mean, obviously had every mark. He was away from God, tattoos everywhere, earrings everywhere but his ears. You know what I'm talking about. And I mean, he, he was just sitting, and, and he was distressed. I said, how can you help? How can I help you? He said, well, preacher, he said a couple nights ago, he said, um, my girlfriend and I were trying to go to sleep, and he said, all of a sudden at our bedroom door, he said, there was a knock. He said, there's only one problem. He said, um, we're the only ones that live in that apartment. He said, I got up. He said, I opened the bedroom door. He said, I was freaked out. He said, I checked every room in the apartment. He said, there was no one there. He said, we were a little rattled, but we tried to go to sleep again. He said, a second time there was a knock at the door. He said, I walked over there, same thing, opened it up, a little more freaked out this time, checked every room, everything's clear. Nobody's in the apartment. I said, I went, tried to go back to sleep. He said, third time there's a knock. He said, this time, he said, I took my cell phone. He said, I don't know where I heard it, but he said, I heard if you took a picture of a demon, even though you couldn't see it, it would come up on the picture. Now, that's not in the Bible. I just wanted you to know that that's not in the Bible, okay? I'm not sure where he heard it from. But he said, I, I stretched out my phone, and he said, I took a picture of the door frame. And then he turned the phone to me, and he says, this is the picture. I will tell you, in that door frame was a being. Now, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say it was Photoshopped. If it was Photoshopped, this kid was the greatest actor I've ever met on planet Earth because he was scared to death. There was a little girl who looked like about eight years old. She had hair I'd look like straw, not like real hair. And her face was pitted that never occurs in an eight-year-old, just kind of like facial problems. And uh, she was translucent. You could see right through her. And she had no eyes, just eye sockets. And he looked at me and said, Preacher, can you help me? And he was a preacher's kid. He knew, he knew that it was Satan, and it scared him. Now, at that moment, when he said, can you help me, I'm thinking, okay, now what class in seminary was that? Angelology, <laughs> demonology, you know how it is. You preachers know what I'm talking about, going through the file. Okay, what is this? I don't know. How to, they didn't talk about that in seminary. Right. And all of a sudden, the Lord brought to my mind, James 4, 7. Amen. And you know what I said to him? I said, I think I can help you. The Bible says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from, a, from you. I said, if you totally surrender to Jesus Christ, you can resist the devil, and he's got to go. Amen. I said, let me ask you a question. That girl you mentioned earlier in the story, are you married to her? He said, no, we're just boyfriend and girlfriend. I said, move out tonight. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what he did? No way, man, I'm not doing that. And I looked him around the eye, and I says, I cannot help you, and neither can God. You cannot say yes to the devil and no to the devil at the same time. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. And if you want to be restored, you got to get the devil out of there. And you don't need to fear Satan because if you're my friend totally under submission of God, then my friend, you can resist the devil and he's got to go. None of us need to fear the devil. 
But I'm talking to some of you Christian kids in this room. You give the devil ground by the junk you're looking at, by some of the music that you listen to. You let the devil get ground in your life and you know you're down for the count. And I'm telling you, friend, that you can just walk out of this service because it won't do a bit of good unless you submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. You, the rest of the passage won't work until you get the devil out of there. Which brings us to number two. Look at verse number eight. Now this is just one imperative for the future tense. He says, draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. Wow. This is movement where now the devil's gone and God comes toward you. Now back when I was a kid, I loved my mother. Absolutely loved my mother. I know I talk a lot about my dad, but I love my mother just like I love my dad. And obviously a different way. But, but um, there was one thing my mother did that was a little bit trying. You know what she would do? Take me shopping. I don't know what it was, but I think my mother tried every dress in the shop or the department. You know what I'm talking about? It would Sometimes I felt like we were there for hours. And I remember going to Montgomery Ward department store. How many remember Montgomery Ward? Unbelievable. There are old people in the room. That's great. Unbelievable. Okay, she'd take me to Montgomery Ward, and she'd be trying on. I'd be sitting there bored to tears. And you know what I found out pretty soon in Montgomery Ward? There was something to keep me entertained. You know what it was called? Mirrors. There are mirrors everywhere. And you'd start, you know, a ways away from the mirror, and you'd start walking to the mirror. you take a step toward the mirror. This is going to shock you. Do you know what the, 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 the person in the mirror would do? Take a step towards you. I know that's a shock. And then, okay, over here. And then you take another step toward the mirror, and guess what? The guy in the mirror would take a step towards you. And before long, you were nose to nose at the mirror. Can I say something to you, friend? God is more predictable than the mirror. Draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. God is not playing hide and go seek, friend. If you're out here saying, I don't get all this love stuff, I, I'm reveling in God's love, how do you do it? Here's how you do it. Seek God until you find him. And I will tell you, friend, if you seek God, you will find him because he's promised to do it. It's, listen, friends, God wants to meet with you. Get the devil out, get God in. And I could, again, preach a whole message, and I, I'm not just talking about box checking. We talk a lot about box checking. I'm talking about a pursuit. I'm talking about i got to find God. I can't go on until I, I find God. My wife tells the story. Her brother was doing white glove, and he had taken some kind of check. I think it was um, his income tax return, and he had put, put it in a, 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 one of those tennis ball canisters, and just for safekeeping. And then during White Glove, he threw it away. <laughs> he was on his way home to Atlanta from Greenville, South Carolina, and somewhere along the line he realized what he had done, turned around, came back, went to the garbage dump. Now here's my question. How long did he search for that tennis ball canister? And the answer is, until he found it. Draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Listen, God's no respecter of persons. There's not a person in this room who could not meet with God. I'm talking soon. You know what the problem is? Well, you don't really want to. Because if you wanted to, you'd seek him. Don't miss this. Until you found him. I remember back as a Bible college student. And I remember I knew this much. My parents were not in great health. My dad had congestive heart failure. My mom was battling cancer. And somehow I knew they weren't going to live long and they didn't. 
One died in my 20s. My mom died when I was in my 20s. My dad died when I, was, when I was in my 30s. But I will tell you this. I remember as a Bible college student, I remember thinking this. I don't know God. Not like mom and dad do. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? You know what became more important to me than the diploma? Finding God. And I will tell you, I remember God began to become real to me. And I remember spending time with God. I'm not talking about devotions. I'm talking about time I set aside just to seek God. And I will tell you, I really believe with all my heart that literally set the, was a platform for the rest of my life. Now, I've not lived it perfectly since then, not at all, not even close. But I remember those early days were absolutely special days. You know what I've learned is if you seek God, you will find him. Now that brings us to the last future tense and we'll be done. Here in James chapter 4, let's look what it says here in verse now number 8, part there. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and here's the future tense. He shall lift you up. You say, well, that's, that's a lot of points there. It's, it is. It's seven verbs. But let me just kind of work through it through. The first two are very critical because I think they set the stage for verse number nine. First it says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. You say, what does that mean to cleanse your hands? Well, you have to understand who he's addressing. He's addressing sinners. So cleansing of your hands has to mean you're dealing biblically and properly with your sin. That's what it's got to mean. So what does that mean? It means, well, let me give you a simple verse of Scripture, Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. I tell young people all the time, how can you cover sin from an all-seeing, all-hearing, ever-present God? And the answer is, you can't. The verse isn't talking about God. It's talking about covering sin from people who have a right to know. You know what cleansing your hands is? It's dealing biblically with your sin. I'm talking to teenagers. Who I'm telling you, you need to sit down with mom and dad and say, mom and dad, I've been hiding stuff behind your back. You know what you're doing? Cleansing your hands. You know what those kids do when they walk into the principal's office, sit down, off the lower lip begins to tremble, and they begin to confess they're cheating. You know what they're doing? Cleansing their hands. See? You know what happens when the young man sits down with dad and says, dad, I've been looking at junk on the internet. You know what he's doing? Cleansing his hands. I remember years ago reading the story of a preacher whose name was Marsh and he was preaching one time and he looked out in the congregation and he saw somebody who looked miserable. Later in the, he kind of in the back of his mind, he said, I got I to see that, that church member, something's not right there. And called him later and said, what's going on? He said, oh, preacher, you have put me in a terrible fix. He said, you know, I work for this boat maker down the way and he says he's an atheist, he hates God, he mocks God all the time, mocks me. He said, my problem is this. I've been stealing copper nails from him. He said, I'm building a boat in my backyard. He said, copper nails are expensive. He said, all I do is every day just put a handful of copper nails in my pocket. He said, I figure he's not paying me enough or he's got so much money he'll never miss it. But he said, I realize those are lame excuses. I'm nothing but a common thief. The preacher urged him to go to his employer and get it right. He said, oh, I can't do that, preacher. He's an, he's an atheist. He'll mock Christianity. He already mocks me. But the preacher urged him to trust God and do it anyway. Well, time passed, and it seemed every Sunday the man was in agony while he was preaching. In fact, one time after church, he said, Oh, preacher, you're, those copper nails are digging into my conscience. One day as the pastor was preaching, he looked out, and he saw this very man, and he didn't even hardly recognize him because he was beaming. 
After the service, he said, okay, tell me what happened. He said, Pastor, I was so miserable. I said, I don't care what happens. I'm going to my employer. He said, I sat down with my employer. I told him I was a common thief. I'd been stealing copper nails in my pocket. And he said, I got right. He said, he looked at me oddly. And then he said, I always thought you were a fake. But he said, any, Christ, any religion that would cause a man to come back and confess stealing copper nails to employer, there must be something to that. You know what he's doing? Cleansing his hands. Now it says, purify your hearts. Now what's that talking about? Well, look who it's addressed to. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now the Bible tells us what a double-minded man is right in this very book. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Why? He's like a wave of the sea. Driven with the wind and tossed. In other words, one moment trusting God, one moment doubting God. One moment trusting God, one moment doubting God. One moment trusting God, one moment doubting God. First thing you need to do is make sure you get your sin taken care of. Get biblical about it. Obviously, 1 John 1, 9, we didn't talk about that, but that's, uh, that's after you uh, confess and get it right with whatever. I mean, the first thing you should do, obviously, is get it right with God and then get it right with whoever the human person is, if there is a human person. But there's a second thing God says here. He says you need to purify your hearts, ye double-minded. In other words, it's like this. Deal with your doubt. Deal with your doubt. I was reading through the, uh, Deuteronomy here just a couple days ago, came to Deuteronomy chapter 1, and of course they were kind of recounting things. And I remember Moses was talking about the fact they came right up at Kadesh Barnea and the people said something that's stunning. They said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us basically to this point to be delivered to the Amorites. Now I want to ask you a question. Did God hate the children of Israel so that's why he brought them so they could be defeated at that point? And the answer is, that's ridiculous. Now don't miss this. He didn't hate them so they could be destroyed. He loved them so they could be delivered. See, their perspective was long, uh, wrong. It was unbelief. Not only that, they talked about the walls being up to heaven. They talked about giants in the land. And they're all focused on all this and all bent out of shape about it. And here's their point, unbelief. But I found that the truth is, we're just like that. You know what unbelief is? Saying, God must hate me. He's brought me to circumstances where I'm going to be destroyed. We do it all the time. You know what we need to be saying? God must love me. He's bringing me to unbelievable circumstances so he can deliver me. You've got to deal with your unbelief. And unbelief really is an indictment. You're saying God doesn't love me. You're saying just what the children of Israel say. They're saying God must hate me. He brought me into unbelievable circumstances. I can't believe God did this. He's going to mess me up. Now we'll never say that, but that's what we say, isn't it? Well, what we ought to be saying is, God's loves me. I can't see all the things going on, but God loves me so much. He's bringing, he's bringing me to this point to deliver me, to bring down walls that are built up and to bring down giants that are bigger than me. Unbelievable. You have to deal with your unbelief to be restored. Obviously, cleanse your hands, deal with your sin, get it right with God. That's usually the easy, that's why I didn't dwell a lot about that. I think we all know to confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But many times I find we're not willing to take that step that God is simply saying, cleanse your hands. Deal with it biblically, get it right. Go to the people you've got to get, go to. Get right, stop covering that sin, get things confessed, deal with them. Do you know what I find when you do those two steps? Verse number nine, I'm not saying it becomes automatic, but it just kind of happens. 
You know what happens when you all, I, I, you could talk to many of my team members who've taken a kid into the principal's office to confess cheating. You know it starts to happen, don't you? Their lower lip starts to tremble. Tears broom up in both their eyes, begin to peel down, peel down their cheeks. And you know what they begin to do? Weep and mourn and turn their laughter into mourning, their joy to heaviness. Seems to me that if you do verse number 8, you'll do verse number 9. There'll be a brokenness. That's what I found. With this. Listen, I have seen, I see this on a regular basis, teenage guys sobbing, getting right about pornography, sobbing. I've seen it all the time. You know what they're doing? They're doing verse number 8. Guess what happens? Verse number 9. If you don't do verse number 8, you're not going to do verse number 9. Listen, teenager, you go to your parents, get right. I'm telling you, you'll do verse number 9. I see this all the time when people get right with God. Boy, I'm telling you, deal with your sin biblically. Deal with your unbelief. Trust God that he can deliver you. He can, he can get you out of the mess. Trust God. I'm telling you, friends, you'll understand what it is to be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. It'll just happen. I remember one time, just a couple months ago, I'm sitting down counseling a kid. and I said, what's the problem? He said, I'm stealing from my kid brother. I asked him a few more questions about it. I said, do your kid brother know about it? He says, no. I said, your kid brother go to school? He said, yeah, he's in such, such a grade. I said, okay, I'm, we're gonna, you're going to confess it to him right now. So I went to the principal. He went down the hallway, went into the elementary classroom, brought the kid brother in. I think the kid brother was scared half to death. He thought he was in trouble. And uh, <laughs> so the kid, kid brother sits down there. This is kid's seventh or eighth grade. I can't remember. I said, your brother wants to tell you something. That lower lip began to tremble. Tears began to spill down his eyes. He said, I just started bawling. He said, I've been stealing from you. See, he was not only cleansing his hands, but I'll tell you what was happening. He was being afflicted to mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning. I'm telling you, I've seen young men, college young men, deal with their, get right with God about their pornographic junk. You know what happens? They begin, listen, if you get caught, you may not weep, but if you came clean, you probably would. I'm telling you, friends, I've just seen it all the time. There is a purity movement afoot, but every one of these guys on the purity movement will tell you the thing that sets them free is no secrets. I could right now beam into this pulpit at least 20 young men from across the country and beam them in right now and they would unashamedly tell you about the fact that they were addicted to pornography sometimes five years, sometimes 10 years, sometimes from single digits to elementary age and they would tell you how God has given them victory and they would tell it with great power because they're no longer defined by their failure, they're defined by the victory that Jesus Christ has given. Amen. Amen. And at a drop of a hat they'll give their testimony. They're not hiding it from anybody. They're done with that. And in many of those cases, the ones that I was around, I'm telling you, I, I at least remember the testimony, if I wasn't there literally, is to the testimony of them being broken. But you know when they got broken? When they got honest. You know what happens? <laughs> You get broken before God. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And here it is. Last future tense. He'll lift you up. 
I'm telling you, big things are happening. I'm just telling you, some big things are on the rise. Hang on, fasten your seatbelt. Big things are happening. God's doing something in this purity arena. There are people getting delivered. There are things happening. Some of the stories I can't tell you right now because they're right in the mix, but they're already taking steps. There's good things happening. I realize it's a battle, but I will tell you in every single case where it happened. You know what started? It started when they said, I'm done with the devil, man. Jesus, I want your will. I don't want the devil's will anymore. And Jesus, I want you more than anything. i got to have a relationship with you. And then they started dealing with their sin. So I'm not hiding this junk anymore. I'm going to get right with the proper people. I'm going to deal with my unbelief that somehow indicts God, that God doesn't love me enough to deliver me at this point in my life. God can do anything. He can deliver me. I'm, I'm going to stop saying he hates me so he can destroy me. He loves me so he can deliver me. And even though I may have been a part of getting in the mix, fix, he's the one that's going to get me out of it. Deal with your doubt. And then I'll tell you something, friends. When you start getting right with God, I'm going to tell you something. To be afflicted in the morning, weep, let your laughter turn in the morning. It's just going to happen. I'm telling you, there are people in this auditorium right now I could bring to the pulpit and they could testify of the day they got honest about something and literally it broke their hearts and there was some weeping and there was some mourning and there was a hating of that sin like they'd never hated it but you know what they would testify he has lifted me up Amen. Amen. that's how you're restored Amen. can I ask every head bowed please and every eye closed